0: Hi, I'm Steve Walsh, a reporter in San Diego. We're telling the story of the Pendleton 14, a group of African-American Marines who, in November 1976, attacked what they thought was a meeting of the Ku Klux Klan on board Camp Pendleton, just north of San Diego. At first, the Marines denied knowing what motivated the attack. The case didn't receive any media attention for days. It finally came out when a person who Ronald Reagan would later appoint to head the National Civil Rights Commission blew the whistle. This is Episode 2 of Free the Pendleton 14. ¶¶ commanding officer for this part of Camp Pendleton, uh, the 2-2 area, is Colonel Mammon A. Johnson. How he handles the investigation will become a central part of the court cases. The night of the attack, he gets a call about 9.30. He's living off base, so he has to get into uniform and come back to Pendleton. Johnson senses a lot of tension among the Marines, which he attributes to the number of armed troops patrolling the area. The 2-2 area is already on lockdown, They've stationed guards at the perimeter. Johnson adds spotters with night vision goggles to scan the area after dark. He visits the scene and sees white man wake up and white power stickers on the door next to the room where the attack happened. Dennis Campbell is one of the leaders of the Ku Klux Klan on base. He actually comes up to one of Johnson's junior officers after the incident. The nervous Klansman volunteers that he thinks the attacks were really meant for them since he and a group of Klansmen live next door. The Klansmen are very bold at this point. They want to be seen as partnering with the Corps to solve what they see as a problem with blacks on base. The following day, investigators search the room of Dennis Campbell. They find the Klan's armory of weapons, including a 357 Magnum handgun, nightsticks, a knife and gunpowder, and a logbook of 16 names of people who were part of the Klan den on Camp Pendleton. While this is happening, investigators also began questioning the African-American Marines who were involved. The African-American Marine I spoke to, Ricky McGilvery, he disagrees, but the attack seems like a terrible plan. Even if they get the room right, they're going into a room of armed clansmen. This is an act of civil disobedience, but the African-American Marines don't want to be caught. They're wearing gloves and covering their skin, but even the stunned Marines inside the room testify that they thought their attackers were black. One Marine guesses the name of one of the sergeants. Whites represent nearly 80% of the Marines on base. It's easy to single out African-Americans. The older sergeants, especially Sergeant William Spencer, he warns McGilvery and his friend B.J. Lee to stay quiet, but it's just too late.
1: I know they start hauling us in one by one with is all in the debris.
0: did you know it was going to be as bad as it was
1: hmm that's a good question I don't know I, I don't know I, uh, especially after we start finding out some details that we were in the wrong room we got a hold to the wrong guys and the door next door was full of of, of knives and guns and stuff where we would have got killed I, I don't know I don't know how – I don't know. The way they hauled us in and the speed in which they locked us up, I figured it was something serious because they locked us up the same day they brought us in for questioning. We never did go back – I never did go back to 22 area. None of us did. None of us – when they put us in the brig, you never saw the light of day in 22 area. They, you never did. I don't, I didn't, let me say that, I did not.
0: The defense argues that Johnson is under tremendous career pressure to keep racial incidents quiet. Part of his responsibility at Pendleton is to maintain good race relations. The Marine Corps is suffering from a wave of negative publicity at this point, including the death of a recruit at West Coast Boot Camp in nearby San Diego. The Corps is desperately trying to adjust to the new all-volunteer military which started in 1972 with the end of the draft. But recruiting has been slow. By the end of the Vietnam War, the Marine Corps was in objectively terrible shape. The Marines were heavily committed in Vietnam and they had to take on a lot of manpower to do it. After the war, they were probably too large to live up to their mission as an elite fighting force. The Marines lacked leadership veteran officers and NCOs were wounded or killed in combat. Many others left when their tour was over. Nathan Packard is an assistant professor at Marine Corps University who studied this era.
2: I think that the mid to late 70s was quite arguably, in terms of discipline, probably the lowest point in the Marine Corps history, certainly the lowest point in the 20th century. Uh, You see rates uh, of indiscipline generally. It's everything from you know, drug abuse to alcohol abuse to desertion rates. The 1970s is where we see the highest uh, rates of all forms of indiscipline in the Marine Corps, much higher than the similar rates in the other services. And so the Marine Corps is, is something of an outlier at the time as well.
0: Incidents that led to recruits being killed at Paris Island in San Diego drew intense scrutiny. Congress talked about taking away boot camp from the Marines and creating a sort of central processing hub for all the services. With all of the fighting and desertion and bad publicity, eventually the Marines found reasons to begin quickly discharging thousands of Marines that it saw as a problem. Busted the gates of Camp Pendleton, newly separated Marines flooded the nearby city of Oceanside. The city actually asked the federal government for millions of dollars to control the crime.
2: During the same time, and again, I mean, when you have a desertion rate of 10 percent, when you have, you actually have communities near Camp Pendleton, California, where a significant percentage of the violent crime uh, is being committed by Marines. And, And all these events or incidents are giving the Marine Corps, you know, one black eye after another. You also have, you know, Marine units at the time that are saying, hey, i I have so many discipline problems that, you know, my unit's non-deployable, you know, which means the the Marine Corps can't, you know, it has units that can't go forward and do their job in the event of of a conflict. So the racial issues were just one piece of the puzzle.
0: For a long time, the Marine Corps didn't want African-Americans. Cameron McCoy is a Marine infantry officer with a Ph.D., He teaches military history at Brigham Young University. He's also African-American.
3: Oh, they were the worst. Really, and the Marine Corps is an exclusively white branch.
0: He researched the slow, halting integration of African-Americans into the Marine Corps, which didn't start until World War II. By contrast, the Army had its first African-American general in 1944. The Marine Corps still hadn't had an African-American general in 1976. There's
3: not a first black Marine in the Marine Corps until August of 1942. And so they were the the last branch to integrate, or at least I I shouldn't even say integrate. This is just to allow blacks in. They still remained in segregated units, headed and led by white officers and white senior enlisted
0: members. The Marines really didn't want to include African-Americans in large numbers until the 1960s, when the Corps needed them to fight in Vietnam a disproportionately high number of African Americans wound up on the front lines. Their death toll fed a distrust which made integration even harder, especially combined with the fact that the Corps waited until the civil rights era.
3: Then you get to the point where blacks are saying, we don't want to integrate, and they're taking the baton of black power, which Stokely Carmichael and Malcolm X are pushing with regard to black nationalism. So the Marine Corps ends up having to deal with that struggle in the 60s. And so although integrated, legally integrated and officially integrated, you still have this plague of racism that is continuing to run rampant within the Marine Corps. So it manifests itself uh, in riots and fights at the E-clubs, the enlisted clubs, on bases, and just overall interactions because Blacks and Whites don't know each other. And you have general officers who've never taken a Black history class and they have to go to local colleges and universities just to learn about Black culture. And so because of this absence of education, leaders don't know how to implement change or reform measures in a healthy way.
0: So the Marines have an incentive to keep news of the Klan quiet. After the incident at Pendleton happens on November 13, 1976, there really is no mention of racial problems on base. The story really doesn't get much attention at all. Six Marines are hospitalized, but the first newspaper accounts talk about a group of black Marines attacking a group of white Marines who are having an unauthorized beer party in their barracks. The story sounds like a group of African-American Marines randomly attacked a group of white Marines having a party. More than a week later, on November 25th, the San Diego Union story mentions that there are rumors of black power and white power groups operating on base. The notion of organized groups on both sides will keep coming up in the early press coverage. Later, the Marines would order an investigation into the racial climate on base. None of the published reports ever mention finding organized black power movements on Camp Pendleton, just the Klan. In the November 25th article, Colonel Johnson is quoted as saying there is no evidence of racial problems in his command, either before or after the incident. He says the Marines still hadn't found the reason behind the attack. Johnson is actually well aware that the Ku Klux Klan is on Camp Pendleton. By this time, Marine headquarters in Washington has already quietly ordered the removal of all the Klansmen, shipping them to other bases around the country. But things are about to get a lot louder. Clarence Pendleton Jr., the executive director of the San Diego Urban League, calls a press conference to announce that the African-American Marines were actually trying to attack the Ku Klux Klan. He criticizes the media for calling the attack unprovoked. He says it was in response to organized racial harassment by whites. He has the details. He knows about the gun found in the Klansman's room and about the list of Marine Klansmen. He offers the assistance of the Urban League to the base commander, but he also calls for a congressional investigation. In that story, the Marines don't either confirm nor deny the existence of the clan on base. It doesn't really matter, though. At that point, it was out there. NBC News had the story. David Brinkley was the anchor. He and Chet Huntley were the original network anchor team, though he's on his own at this point. The set is so basic. A desk. You see his hands. His eyes dip down to the copy in front of him and then back up to the camera, like he's not using a teleprompter, which I can tell you is hard. The graphic behind his right shoulder is the outline of California. It shows L.A. and then below L.A. Camp Pendleton. I love listening to David Brinkley. He has this wry, weary tone like, here we go again. The other day at Marine Corps Camp Pendleton in California, A group of black marines attacked a group of white marines, stabbing and beating them. The blacks apparently thought they were attacking a meeting of marines belonging to the Ku Klux Klan, but apparently they were attacking the wrong group. There were Klan members, but in another room. Don Oliver at Camp Pendleton tells us what's going on. Within days, The Washington Post, New York Times, and the three major TV networks sent correspondents to San Diego to cover the court cases. The overall base commander for Camp Pendleton, Major General Carl Hoffman, told NBC News that he wanted the Klansmen removed, saying that he was concerned that the continued high profile that the incident has received in the media will excite emotions to the point where he could have an otherwise minor confrontation between one or two marines that could develop into something further. Major General Hoffman is saying it's his idea, though we know from the court records that it's really the Pentagon who wants these Klansmen out of Pendleton almost immediately. Reverend Jesse Jackson, the head of Operation Push, arrived unannounced at Pendleton. He met with Major General Hoffman. He also talked to the African-American Marines in the brig. He held a press conference where he blamed the attack on Klan activity. Ricky McGilvery is surprised to see Jackson coming around the corner toward his cell in the brig at Camp Pendleton. Jackson prays with them in the chapel and then tells them he's going to help them get out of there.
1: The first move was, Free to fourteen. And that's what Jesse Jackson started for, us. Free to Fourteen.
0: Actually, a host of groups got involved under the banner of the Coalition to Free the Pendleton Fourteen, a grassroots organization made up of civil rights groups and still active elements of San Diego's anti Vietnam War movement. Kate Yadiddy had passed the bar a year earlier, but she wasn't quite a lawyer yet. She was working for a law firm in LA run by Bill Smith. helped draftees and other members of the military who had gotten into trouble during the vietnam war i
4: i actually joined the law firm to work with bill smith to do hearings administrative hearings around military cases discharge upgrade hearings there was a lot of that going on out of the vietnam war there were a lot of guys who were discharged with bad discharges for any number of reasons some of it just because they were rebellious and didn't want to be drafted and they were you know whatever so even as a non-attorney i could do administrative hearings and that's so that's how i sort of got started military law
0: kate came down to san diego from santa monica to help there she met the guy that eventually she would decide to marry
4: you know i would just sort of come down on the weekends and work on things like newsletters and leaflets and things like that that's how we met We, we met in Larry's front room. Larry and his twin brother, Terry, and Terry's wife, Kathy Gilbert, all lived together in a house in um, Hillcrest. And that was kind of where everybody was meeting and doing all this work.
0: Larry Christian was working for the Center for Servicemen's Rights in San Diego. Though the draft officially ended in 1972 and the fall of Saigon happened a year before in 1975, he was still working with members of the military who wanted to be part of the peace movement. While at the same time, he was starting to think about what to do next.
5: This case came along, this this incident at, at Camp Pendleton, and we thought that that that, that merited, you know, you know, really full attention from us. And so we why this this case was singular in some, in some important ways. So, but in San Diego at the time. Uh, there were very active, uh, you know, Ku Klux Klan and right wing, even paramilitary organizations and forces active you know, in San Diego. And it, it was not at all surprising that there should be a presence of those at Camp Pendleton. And so when these, uh, when these black marines took action in, into their hands to try to do something about this re, these resurgent racist organizations, Uh, We thought it needs to be addressed in a forthright way and that Marines, particularly black Marines who take a stand against it, need to be supported in whatever ways that we can muster.
0: They began fundraising to hire lawyers and generating publicity to call attention to the Pendleton 14 who were still locked away in the brig. One weekend they organized a march in Oceanside, the community just outside Pendleton's gates.
4: When we had demonstrations around the Pendleton case mm-hmm. that the white nationalists and the racists would come out and uh, and create problems at the demonstrations mm-hmm. and try to provoke and try to fight, try to get people mm-hmm. to fight. And
0: There was a piece of local TV footage that was passed along to the networks after one of the initial hearings for the Pendleton 14. We're just here to see that justice is done, and uh, we feel like it hasn't done, just as they attack right now physically. Uh-huh. All the people who continue to, continue to claim the clan so violent and so forth, they are the ones who are doing the attacking. That's David Duke. He and a few of his followers were batted with picket signs made out of poster board. Marines quickly jumped in and shoved the handful of protesters away. No one was arrested. But after that, the spotlight seems to shift. Coming up on the next episode... The fact that the Grand Dragon of the Ku Klux Klan showed up at Camp Pendleton doesn't seem to add an exclamation point to the revelation that the Klan was on a Marine base. Instead, Duke begins steering the coverage toward the white supremacists. Meanwhile, the African-American Marines still await their fate,